Hi, I'm Philippa um, and I'm here, I work as a cell biologist for Unilever and I think animal free research is very important from a personal point of view because I'm a big lover of animals and I don't think they should suffer on our behalf in any way. And also from a work point of view, because I don't think that animals are clinically relevant to a lot of the work that I personally do, but also a lot of other science work that goes on and research. Um, I think that we should be using the right models to begin with, and I think we should start from there. And also a, a side effect of that is obviously reducing animal suffering as well. Hi there, this is Carla Owen of Animal Free Research UK. And this is the Animal Free Labcast, the show dedicated to a kinder, modern science that puts humans at the heart of medical research. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Malcolm Wilkinson. Malcolm is the founder of Kirkstall, a company which makes organ-on-a-plate technology that replaces animals and is commercially available to researchers. We talked at our Modernising Medical Research Conference and in this episode we'll be doing a deep dive into organ chip technology. What it is, how it works, how it's driving animal-free research and testing and what needs to happen next. Yeah, okay, well, um, my job title is retired. (laughs) But as you know, I spend an awful lot of time working and I do things that interest me. So I've got a, a visiting professor at Sheffield University in the biomedical area mm-hmm. which is technically you know where where my background is yeah uh, i'm still a non-executive director of kirkstall which mm. is the company i founded about 14 years ago yeah. and i do a little bit of consulting now and again with my own company technology for industry so yes there you are it's a long uh, long story but um just doing what interests me basically mm. and this this charity uh, your charity is one of my you know Main, main things at the moment. And you're on our advisory, scientific advisory panel as Indeed. well. Indeed, yes, thank you for inviting me. So do you have a, a personal motivation in all of this, Malcolm? Well, I've got a passion for animals. Yeah. And uh, of course, I've left behind my two border terriers at home. <laughs> oh. uh, I shall miss them today. But um, the, yes, a love of animals, I think, and a belief that animals are sentient yeah. and I know that I'm basically a scientist and engineer and I can see that it is possible to make replacement. But the ethical motivation, the love of animals Mm. uh, and the belief that we have to look after them is is core to it. And that's why I'm happy to spend all the time uh, I've got free uh, to help help you guys at the uh, Animal Free Research Charity. So we're at the Animal Free Research UK conference in Birmingham. Um, recording this podcast Um, and there's lots of young scientists here and um, the charity particularly supports young scientists as the next generation we think we feel like that's where the change is going to come what kind of you know message would you have for those next generation I think it's really important that we reach young people and uh, I I would start as early as you can I mean I, I remember at secondary school, we had a choice between studying biology hmm. and, strangely, Latin. Oh, <laughs> that's a Now, I, it wasn't so much a positive decision that I wanted to study Latin. It was that I couldn't bear the thought of cutting frogs and mice up, yeah. which was clearly going on in the biological mm. labs at that time. I don't know whether it still does. Uh, so I would say school, school children uh, is not too early to start. And by the time you get to the research community here, the uh, you know the young 
graduates, postgraduates, um, I'm sure a lot of them are driven by very strong ethical uh, motives. Uh, so let's let's really build on that. And I think providing them with a route forward where they can find access to information mm. on alternative methods, they can see a research um, a career path yeah. to carry on with the work they do um, through the rest of their career would be great. So, so tell us a little bit about Kirkstall and um, what Kirkstall does and how and you know and why you founded it. Okay, um, well, Kirkstall is a company that I, uh, I say founded about fourteen years ago, and the reason I founded it, I, I came across at a conference uh, somebody in Italy, Professor Artiala Walia, and she put up a presentation that said she felt they could replace animal testing. Uh, so my ears pricked up because I thought, well, that's something I'd love to help. Mm. And then she went on and, and told me all about the technology that she was using. And I thought, I know all about that. I've been doing microfluidics and uh, you know the te- micro technology for years. I'm sure I can help. Mm-hmm. So after a brief conversation with her, I found out that actually she wasn't interested at all in founding a company because she was an academic. She wanted to pursue her academic career. Mm-hmm. And all the uh, ideas that she developed, she said, you know, these are available. We've patented them, but um, they're available. I said, look, why don't I help you found a company? We'll, we'll, I'll run the company. You get on with your research. So Kirks was the outcome from that. Oh. We actually took all the technology that she had, put it into Kirkstall, raised some finance and got going. And Kirkstall's sole mission was to take that technology and apply it in in uh, replacing animals as best we could. So, can you explain the technology that Kirkstall develops in in kind of simple terms? If you're going to model the human, you need multiple cell types, mm-hmm. and if you've got multiple cell types or multiple organs, you need to connect them together. Mm. So, connected models was one of the prime goals of this. And the question is, how to connect them? In the body, all your different cells and organs are connected by blood flow. Mm -hmm. And it seemed that if we moved media, uh, culture media, around between the different chambers with cells in, then you'd be mimicking what happened in the body. So the fundamental construction was little chambers connected together uh, with media flowing around between them, mimicking what happens in the body. So this is organ on a chip? No, no, no. Oh, no. I know. You no, don't like that term, do it's you? Or, it's organ on a plate. Organ on, organ a, on a plate. plate. Okay. No, the one thing I knew about microfluidics is it's incredibly difficult. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, the smaller your tubes and connections are, the more likely you are to get um, bubbles stuck mm-hmm. in them. And so I knew from that past experience that you need to get the scale right. So what's the difference between a chip and a plate? Well, um, a, a chip really uh, comes from sort of semiconductor industry. I think people like the idea of microchips. Yeah. And so it sounds good. Microchip sounds a very sexy technology. <laughs> but we all use organ plates. And, yeah. and the thing is that, that a 24-well plate is an industry standard size. Mm-hmm. So why not use that as your basic building block, you know, 24-well plate? So for people who haven't seen a well plate, it's, um, could you describe it? Yes. Uh, I mean, if I said it's about the size of a cigarette packet, of course, nobody knows what a cigarette packet is anymore. <laughs> but it's, it, yes, it's, it's about, uh, let me think, t- uh, and again, I work in Imperial, so it's, it's about two inches by four inches, uh, mm-hmm. whatever that is in centimetres. 
it, it's something you can handle very easily. A lot of equipment will take this standard well plate. So microscopes, um, you, you know, they have stages that take these. Uh, robotic machines can handle these plates. So it's a very robust, practical solution for how to handle small amounts of biological material with fluid in it as well. So you make um, organ on the plate that is commercially available for researchers? Exactly. That's our target market really is, is the research community. We think it will happily migrate to industry uh, as time goes on because each of the academic teams that's using our plates is developing protocols. Yeah. Those protocols are, are becoming more robust mm -hmm. and hence uh, they'll reach a point where they get interesting to industry mm -hmm. because I don't think industry necessarily wants to do the early research. They want to pick it up when there's something that's been demonstrated to really work well. Yeah. And so that's the future direction. So what are some of the research applications that are used with your um, systems? Yeah, well, we started off focusing on liver because we thought that uh, was very important for yeah, toxicology. Absolutely. And so we designed our systems. Here it is for liver. And of course, we uh, had a lot of uh, interest from academics. And then within a very short period, probably six months, they were using it for all sorts of other things. You know, ah. we'd, we'd said it's useful liver, so they were building skin models. And, uh -huh. and then uh, somebody said, can we build a lung model? Uh, what about the pancreas? What about the kidney? Mm -hmm. And so on. Uh, and it just mushroomed out because the basic system was flexible enough. It could actually build models to mm. do these other organs. So from a commercial perspective, that's really important, isn't it, that it can be adapted in a number of ways? I, I think in the research community, yes. And, and not only for liver specialists or lung specialists or heart specialists, but the people who want to connect them together. Yes. Because if you've built a model that somebody's used for liver and somebody else has used for a cardiac, then you, you can plug them together and then you've got a, a, a more a complex and more system-like model. A body on a plate. Ah, well, a body on a plate, but also <laughs> a replacement for an animal. Because yes. one of the reasons that people use animals is because it is a complete biological system. Mm. You know, it's, it's the fact that an animal has all the organs connected together. And so for a lot of medical research, that's what you're trying to mimic. You want a lot of connected organs. So how many organs do you think that you need to have connected in order to be able to replace animals? Well... Every organ is added to the mix and, yeah. and makes the model more complex. So you've got a trade-off. Some diseases you could probably mi mimic quite well with just two organs mm -hmm. um, or, or three. You don't need every organ in the body. Yeah. Um, but clearly, the more complexity you build in, mm. uh, you've got a more sophisticated model, but you've also got something that's more complicated and yeah. takes longer to set up. So there's a trade-off. Yeah. And I think that's very important that models can be as complex as you like, but it's adding uh, difficulty and time. And so the, the goal really is to choose the simplest model that actually mimics what the medical problem is or the disease that you're trying to um, study. So you mentioned liver before. Um, can you tell us why liver is a really important organ to be able to model okay well one of the big uses of animals uh, is of course 
testing of toxicity. Uh, and also, of course, another important use of animals is in medical research. But in, in both cases, you know, liver is a fundamental organ of metabolism. Mm. So uh, drugs uh, in the body will be metabolized by, by the liver. And uh, liver toxicity uh, or drug-induced liver in, uh, injury is, is an important reason why drugs fail. Mm. You know, developing drugs uh, don't uh, get into the market because they've been toxic to the, uh, the liver. Now, um, that's why we started with liver, but mm -hmm. then, of course, we're moving on to now more complex models. So is that one of the key things that um, pharmaceutical industry and regulators are looking for when the animal tests that are required are done? Is that looking to see whether there's any drug-induced liver injury? That's certainly very important still. Yeah. So how far away do you think we are from being able to convince regulators and, and the pharmaceutical industry that approaches like yours are a better alternative to using, than using animals? It's getting closer, no doubt about that. And I think it's going to be based on evidence. Mm -hmm. So good academic research will underpin that. Um, I think it won't necessarily be that we replace animals all in one go, so we can... Yeah. We'll find there's one disease or one organ where you find a protocol which is robust. Uh, it produces predictable results that mimic you know, what happens in the human. And so it will gradually be more and more protocols, more and more tests that we can tick the box and say, that one, we don't need animals anymore. So how close is it? I think we'll see that probably in a couple of years. I'm, I'm that oh, optimistic. Fabulous. Yeah, and I think the pace is picking up yeah. and people are now more far more aware of what the regulatory process is and how they can make those change and where do you see um kind of in terms of the world who, who's leading this where do you think the change will come first well it's going to be the uk isn't it of course, yeah. <laughs> of course it we're, is. <laughs> we're going to be a powerhouse of innovation no i i, I think that it, the um, regulations are clearly global that yeah. most of the regulators you know look at the fda and, and so on look at Europe. Uh, sometimes Europe leads. I think the cosmetic directive yeah. uh, was a leading shift. Absolutely. And hence, we, you know, you have to be aware of things globally. Yeah. 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 So you just mentioned the cosmetics directive, Malcolm. Can you tell us why that's been so important and what it is? Well, um, it was a bit of legislation that basically pushed progress in, in in vitro research or alternatives. So the idea that if you ban a method, um, industry will scrabble around very quickly to find an alternative way of doing things. And so we had the regulation changed and the cosmetics directive was saying you must not use animals if you're going to test uh, ingredients in cosmetics. Mm. So very quickly, um, either industry stopped using animals and went to non-animal methods yeah. um, or basically had to stop using those particular materials that they uh, they couldn't test any other way so how important do you think um work that organizations like ours are doing to try and um raise the issue with politicians to try and get different legislation different regulations supporters kind of petitioning their mps how important do you think that is um in terms of sort of that knock-on effect that it can have well i think it's very important and i think that Example of the cosmetics directive shows that if you can get 
the uh, governments and politicians and legislators to make changes, uh, that will force the pressure on the research community and industry to change. So yes, it's, it's somewhere where it's well worth putting the, the pressure on those uh, MPs and uh, bodies, government bodies that are in this field. Yeah, well worth doing. And you, you came to our parliamentary reception a few weeks ago, Malcolm, where we launched our new report with, um, with Joanna Lumley. Yes, yes, wonderful. Well, she gave a very good uh, talk on, on the uh, sort of strategy for how to make change happen. Yeah. And uh, it's well worth looking, looking at the details of that. But um, it was really encouraging to see the number of MPs cross mm. parties. It's not really a party political no. issue to get the support across the different parties and willingness to push through change uh, in, in the future. It really does feel like it, things are starting to happen now, doesn't it? Very much so. We're yeah. building momentum. I think that's the thing I would feel about this now. And what other changes can you see would be useful as we make that transition from, as a, you know, as a, as a wider community from animal research to animal-free research? I'd like to see a lot more involvement from industry, yeah. pharmaceutical industry, cosmetics industry, in working with you and, and the academic groups mm. to, to actually support change. Yeah. So um, the, the, the research on alternative methods needs funding. And uh, yes, that'd be nice if it comes from government. But I mm. think industry could play a much bigger role in f funding the alternative research. What, what role is industry playing at the moment? Well, um, industry is running its business model. Uh, its business model is, is about developing products, drugs, cosmetics, whatever it is, and supporting the, uh, the financial model that they have. Some companies are hold up an ethical banner, and it's really exciting when they do that. Mm. But most companies are just busy you know, th uh, carrying on with business as usual. And we have to persuade them that they shouldn't be doing that. They need to change. <laughs> yeah. And other benefits for them in changing? Well, I think so, because we know that a lot of their existing models are broken effectively, that we, the testing of, of drugs, you know, something like 90% or more of drug candidates fail when they get into the clinic. Yeah. That's, that's an appalling uh, <laughs> reflection on, on the processes that are being used at the moment. It's a scandalous failure. Really yeah, yeah. That, I mean, if, if, if every time you built a motorway bridge, 90% of them fell down, <laughs> the company that was building them would be soon out of business. Absolutely. So, yeah, but uh, we have to help them find more efficient methods mm. and get that success rate up because there's a lot of waste for you. I mean, if 90% of the research that's gone on then fails, yeah. that's a big waste. Is that is that ninety percent of failure rate related to using animals in research? It's related. It, it's difficult to put a cause and effect. I mean, we know that the existing methods they use are a mixture of very simple in vitro methods uh, mm -hmm. and animal methods, and all it says is that the combination of those isn't adequate for the job. So we can improve the in vitro methods. We can add in more in silica, which is the computational models. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's linked, but it's, it's dangerous to say it's cause and effect. Through that kind of more complex approach using, you know, the complex models that you make, that's going to be the way that we find better treatments for patients. Absolutely. I think it's going to be a combination of a lot of different methods coming together and using that uh, information to replace animals and give us better medicines. 
Malcolm, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining me on the Animal Free Labcast. Carla, thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Malcolm is an important voice from the UK commercial sector who is calling for the pharmaceutical industry to change and to adopt better, more sophisticated animal-free methods in order to find better treatments for patients. He saw firsthand the role of the public and politicians in building momentum for an end to animal testing for cosmetics and it's heartening that he thinks we can replicate that for new drugs and medicines. That's all we have time for in this episode of the Animal Free Labcast. Huge thanks to Malcolm for joining us. Don't forget to visit animalfreeresearchuk.org to make a donation if that's something you can do right now and to find out how you can support medical research that is helping cure diseases faster without animal suffering. Thank you for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share far and wide.